This episode is brought to you by Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to fantastic podcast sponsorship opportunities, all with a click of a button. Believe it or not, we found this advertising opportunity you're listening to right now with Podcorn. Think of this as the ad within the ad. Podcasters of all sizes can browse and choose opportunities on the Podcorn platform, set their own rates, and collaborate with brands directly. If you want to sell ads on your podcast or buy ads for your product, it's never been easier or faster, thanks to Podcorn. Check them out at www.podcorn.com. Before we get started, I want to tell you about something new that we're trying. All podcasters know the best way to grow your show is through word of mouth. So we created a referral link that makes it easy to share the podcast by text, email, or DM to your friends, family, or anyone else you know who could use a little dose of inspiration for civic engagement and our collective future. It's a two-step process. First, follow the link in our show notes to get your personal referral link, which you can then send around. Once you share our show with five friends who then download the podcast, I'll send you a handwritten thank you note and a future hindsight button to thank you for your support. If you share it with 10 friends who download an episode, I'll send you a branded Future Hindsight Moleskin Notebook. Yup, a real Moleskin Notebook with our logo on it. Thank you for spreading the word and thank you for listening. Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week I speak with citizen changemakers who spark civic engagement in our society. Our guest today is Norm Stamper. He's a former Seattle police chief who 15 years ago wrote Breaking Rank, a top cop's expose of the dark side of American policing. It was part memoir, part polemic, and based on his experience as a cop for 34 years. He never thought he'd write another book on police, but when Michael Brown was killed in 2014 on the streets of Ferguson, his publisher asked him to write about what's happening in policing that's creating so much tension and giving rise to so many horrific incidents. In 2016, he wrote To Protect and Serve, How to Fix America's Police. He gives an insightful analysis of law enforcement, the war on drugs, and the increased militarization of the police force. Though four years have passed since the publication of this book, not much has changed. In fact, things have only gotten worse. I celebrate the calls for defunding and dismantling American law enforcement. I celebrate the pleas on the part of grassroots organizers and the many millions of people who've taken to the streets since the George Floyd murder. Let's come to the table and reimagine public safety in America, in which the police are the community and the community are the police. We talk about the roots of the crisis in policing and the intense alienation of police officers from the people they've been hired to serve, as well as a revolutionary model for American law enforcement, the community-based police department. Let's listen in. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. After a summer of watching videos over and over again of civilians, citizens, I should say, being brutalized by police, 
How is it that the police response doesn't seem to be reform or keeping their misconduct in check? Well, allow me a, a very short history of modern American policing. I became a cop in 1966 in San Diego. And the mid-60s were a time of campus unrest, anti-war demonstrations, uh, civil rights insurrections. We saw lots and lots of clashes between cops and community. So what we're seeing today is anything but new. But one thing that didn't happen, when I say we saw it, we actually didn't. We heard about it. We heard the official accounts, for example, from police chiefs and sheriffs and uh, police spokespersons about a, a controversial shooting, for example. And what's happened of late is that now white middle class Americans are seeing, uh, for example, the murder of George Floyd on Memorial Day in Minneapolis. And I think what they're doing is uh, putting two and two together and saying, well, wait a minute. I remember the official account of the Tamir Rice shooting, 12-year-old boy on a snowy field in Cleveland and at about the same time as Ferguson. What's new is people are now seeing it. They're now bearing witness to it. The short answer to why policing historically seems just incapable of reforming itself is that it is a product of the cop culture, which is a product of the structure of American policing. Paramilitary, bureaucratic, top-down, very regimented, and very, very antagonistic toward democratic values. And so, as with all workplaces, cultures tend to be cultivated by the structure of the institution, their genesis being in assisting slave owners and slave patrollers in returning owned property to slave owners throughout the South and aligning themselves in the North with anti-labor police forces. So from the very beginning, the institution has been tainted and it has been aligned with moneyed and property classes. It's been aligned with whites over blacks and other people of color. It's been aligned with uh, management over labor, for that matter, landlords over tenants. So the institution itself comes from an unholy place. If those institutions took years or literally generations to form, they are not going to reform overnight. And added to the fact that looking at the cop culture, there's a whole lot of arrogance embedded in that culture. Police officers today are doing what they've been taught to do. They are engaging in patterns of behavior, some of which they learn in the academy, most of which, however, they learn in the front seat of a police car or in the locker room or debriefing after work at a cop bar and imbuing all of these stories and accounts of police experiences with a whole lot of exaggeration and untruths. So 
What really does uh, come up for me as I look at why police have not reformed themselves is because they cannot re-engineer or reinvent the way policing has for centuries been organized and practiced in this country. Yeah, you talk at length in your book about how essentially police behavior is deeply institutionalized. And like you said, it's essentially impossible to reform. So when you hear calls for defunding the police or abolishing the police, let me just say that if I hear defund the police or reform the police, I think of, you know, just starting from scratch, because after I saw the shooting of Jacob Blake, I thought, oh, my God, we just have to start from zero. I don't know how to even conceive of another way. But if you could start from zero, what would you do? You have captured, I think, the thinking and the feeling of a whole lot of people in this country who are saying that the institution is so thoroughly tainted and toxic that we need to start over. I celebrate the calls for defunding and dismantling American law enforcement. I celebrate the pleas on the part of grassroots organizers and the many millions of people who've taken to the streets since the George Floyd murder. Let's come to the table and reimagine public safety in America, in which the police are the community and the community are the police. So if we can start with the premise that the police in America, free, ostensibly, free and democratic, multicultural society, the police in America belong to the people, not the other way around. If we can get everyone to embrace that simple and yet so terribly complicated notion, we can begin to picture a public safety model radically different from the one we have. Now, here's one practical problem. At three o'clock this morning, somewhere in America, a man will choke his wife or within the next 15 to 20 minutes, there will be a horrific traffic accident. This is what today's police and yesteryear's police have responded to. Those are urgent emergency pleas for help. We need to respond to those scenes and we need to comfort victims and uh, corral witnesses and find out what happened and then do something about that. We need to hold accountable people who engage in violent crime. I start with family violence because that's where violence is generally learned. We need to be able to start with domestic violence. We need to look at violence in our own neighborhoods. Then we need to look at violence and other predatory crimes throughout our community, throughout our neighborhoods, our cities, and ultimately our states and the entire country. The answer's got to come from the community. It's got to come from the so-called non-experts, the lay people who are, in fact, living, for example, with that crime. So my model of future policing is community and police knitted together with the police having ceded maybe 50% of its authority to grassroots community organizations. I do embrace a model that calls 
for kind of a plebiscite in which neighborhoods at the census tract level would elect people to represent them in police policy making. And what you would see would be police sitting down with citizens and setting policy and crafting procedures and selecting new police officers and developing the curriculum for police academy training and introducing that curriculum to new officers. So citizens would be involved in every single aspect of modern policing. Police are fond these days of talking about the community police partnership. Well, show me one. Show me one that exists anywhere in this country, including projects that I've personally been involved in and been deeply invested in. It doesn't exist, and it has to. It has to. Well, I think a lot of people would agree with you on the community policing as being the optimal solution. And since you just mentioned that you've been a part of several projects, why have they failed so far? Well, they have been hatched. They've been incubated within that old structural environment. In San Diego, in the late 70s, we launched a community policing program that put a cop on a beat long enough to get to know the people and the problems, to study socioeconomic characteristics and demographics and crime trends and patterns and institutional patterns of life. And together, we'll try to make the streets safer. We'll try to make our homes safer. But the problem, frankly, is that we're sort of expecting that to happen within the traditional police structure. It just is not gonna happen. We need to change, rearrange the way the molecules are organized. We need to create an entirely new structure. Structure does give rise to culture and culture gives rise to behavior. I mean, we will be back again and again and again throughout the country in cities small and large, unless we radically change the way policing is organized. So I guess now that we're in this moment where we have so many allies calling for exactly this, a radical reorganization, what are two things I could be doing as an everyday citizen to demand this kind of transformation, to help it along, to make it come true? Organize, mobilize, educate. I always like to encourage people who have that impulse to act on that impulse and to understand it's not going to be easy. When Americans get together to confront significant social issues, it is often messy and it's time consuming and it can be frustrating. But if we're guided by a common vision, if we can reach that point where we have a crystallized vision of what public safety can look like, then we get together and we build a new organizational mechanism, a new institutional mechanism. And that does mean that we become students of American law enforcement, because it's so important to understand what doesn't work and get to the bottom of why it doesn't work so that we can, in fact, build a successful system. There is strength in numbers, getting together with people, organizing and mobilizing, and then educating, and then creating 
a whole new model. And, and it would be one, as I suggested earlier, in which police and community are literally working side by side. Some people have suggested, well, given that a huge percentage of what passes for police work in American society is really order maintenance, is um, trying to prevent dangerous situations, help people who are in trouble, many of whom are alcohol and other drug addicted or are uh, suffering the, the throes of mental illness, that we get professionals. Cops are not professionals in these areas. Far from it. They're the first ones called. Uh, they're the least qualified in many respects. If we want to make public safety successful, we will recognize that cops, by definition, are very, very limited. Uh, they do an awful lot hundreds of different discrete tasks, duties, responsibilities, but they're pretty much experts, sadly, in only one area, and that's the use of coercive force. So teaming up police with experts in their respective areas makes a tremendous amount of sense. Yeah, I think one of the things that really struck me in your book is that you talked about both macro and micro solutions to making policing work for society. This week, our show is sponsored by The Jordan Harbinger Show and its host, Jordan Harbinger. He started as a life coach before realizing podcasting was his true calling. Now, he's running one of the most exciting and successful interview podcasts on the market and was named one of Apple's best of 2018. Jordan sits down with fascinating guests for long-form interviews to make you think critically about the issues facing the world today. He leans on his experience as a self-improvement mentor to bring lively, entertaining, and deeply informative interviews right to your phone several times a week. He isn't giving out trite, cliched tips you've heard a thousand times. Instead, he's diving into the most interesting minds of our generation to let them give you great advice. The Jordan Harbinger Show will keep you engaged, entertained, and informed. What more could you ask for? If you like Future Hindsight, I think you'll enjoy The Jordan Harbinger Show, too. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find the show at jordanharbinger.com. One of the things that I thought was really interesting and I didn't expect to see is your call to end the war on drugs. And it's not that I haven't heard this before, of course, but the way that you framed it was really something that I hadn't seen before. Can you talk a little bit more about what that would do for the police force, but also for everyday people? When uh, Richard Nixon famously uh, declared drug abuse, public enemy number one, and declared all-out war on drugs. He was really declaring war on his own people. And he saw to it with willing compliance, enthusiastic support from America's police chiefs and sheriffs, put cops on the front lines of that war. So by definition, from very early on in the early 70s, the police were the soldiers in a frontline war against their own people. What a tragedy. 
of monumental scale and frankly, Shakespearean proportions. This was utterly predictable that we would put cops uh, on the front lines of the drug war and they would go after everybody from Mr. Big, as back in the day we used to refer to the major, major uh, drug traffickers, the cartels, but mostly America's cops are dealing with young people, poor people, and people of color in wildly disproportionate numbers who are dealing a half a baggie of weed or various pharmaceuticals on street corners. They're looking to make a buck. Some of them are looking to support their own next fix. It's a medical problem. It's a public health problem. But we made it a criminal problem. And so we're waging war against our fellow Americans. Now, I need to say there are a lot of police officers who have developed this intense fascination with drug busts. And a good number of cops get killed and injured on these highly militarized drug raids. But more often, it is citizens, some of whom are absolutely non-threatening to the police. Any sudden movement and shots ring out. Society owns this. We allowed an elected official, supported by the way, by a string of elected officials from then until the current time to continue to wage this drug war, which really is a war against our own people. I do believe that it is time to end the drug war, replace its organizing mechanism, which is prohibition, an utterly failed proposition dating back to the 30s. What does work is a sound public health model, education, prevention. I believe that any adult can make a choice about what he or she chooses to inject or ingest or inhale into his or her own system, so long as that individual is prepared to face consequences that might come from health risks or safety risks. Most people, I think, are responsible drug users, whether it's marijuana or alcohol. Most people are. But for those who aren't, we need a different model. Yes, agreed. I think we don't think about it in these terms because we have been, or at least I have, <laughs> been alive throughout this whole regime. So it's the kind of thing where it's in the water. You can't even think differently a, about it. Yeah. It's kind of similar to what you're saying about institutional behavior. One of the things that you mentioned just now is about these militarized drug busts, but also militarization in general, you mentioned in the book, and how the police force has become more militarized. How did that happen in recent years? And why is this a problem? When I became a cop, it had been years since a San Diego police officer had shot and, and killed or wounded a, a fellow human being. We would talk about how many years it had been since we had unholstered or even unsnapped the holsters of our firearms. We just didn't do it. We were taught that the preservation and protection of human life However racist we may have been as an institution, however corrupt we may have been as an institution, however uh, arrogant we may have been 
in our treatment of our fellow human beings, the one thing we didn't do was shoot them. Nor did we look like soldiers uh, driving or walking down the street. Unfortunately, we have allowed the drug war to create this war-like mentality that we want every vehicle we drive, every piece of equipment we carry or wear, every weapon we take into the streets to give us the upper hand. And for many, what that means is increasingly militaristic. So if we want to put an end to that, we've got to find alternatives that are safe for officers and safe for the community. And that means, to my way of thinking, systematically ending the drug war, extracting that excuse for the increased militarization, and then recognizing that if we're out there using military-grade equipment and weapons against our fellow Americans who are assembled to express their First Amendment rights in a protest, for example, against police brutality, it's time for us to hold up one big giant mirror and look at how we're coming across. If we're looking for a new model of public safety and policing, we've got to demilitarize. I'm not saying we'll ever get to a point where you won't see a gun on the hip of a police officer. <laughs> we have more guns than people in this country. And if we're going to put an end to it, we've got to find a way to disarm the American people without throwing panic into the ranks of Second Amendment advocates. I fought the Second Amendment. I fought it as a police chief in any number of occasions and in debates in the community saying, we've amended many sections of our Constitution over the years. That the Second Amendment is just that. An amendment doesn't mean that it itself cannot be amended. It was an amendment written for an era of great fear against a tyrannical government that, by the way, was an ocean away. So we, we need to study that history and we need to understand uh, almost the theology that we have attached to the Second Amendment in this country. But it's almost impossible to have a, a calm, measured conversation about what firearms are doing to this nation and have been doing now for many decades. Well, you just made a very calm case to re-examine the Second Amendment. So thank you. That was very well put. If only people could hear more of you in the way that you said it just now, then you're not saying that you can't have guns. You're just saying we need to really look at this again because it's really not serving us as a society. At the very end of your book, you ended with a chapter called Fixing America's Police, More Big Government, Please. Basically, you call on the federal government for leadership and compliance, which could, in fact, apply here to the Second Amendment as well. But how do you envision the federal government's role in improving police practices? What I envision is the Department of Justice setting national standards in every area of what's often called procedural justice. These are constitutional guarantees, and I would be happy to throw in the Second Amendment and to argue for its preservation so long as we do these other things. Let us put an end to arbitrary and unlawful stop and frisk. 
search and seizure, laws of arrest, rules of evidence, and one final huge one, use of force. There are laws that govern all of these procedural justice provisions embedded in the Constitution, and we ought to set a standard or a series of standards for every single one of those and impose them on every single law enforcement agency in the country. There are 18,000 of them, by the way, which complicates things enormously. But I believe we ought to certify police departments on the strength of their ability to meet or exceed every one of these standards. We need, through the Department of Justice, to license every police officer. I mean, my God, we license beauticians, we license barbers, we license people in a wide variety of trades that do not carry life and death or peace and freedom authority. But my God, police officers do in fact carry guns. They wear badges. They have the right to make lawful stops. They have the right to use lethal force if the circumstances justify it. The individual officer who shot and killed 12-year-old Tamir Rice had been a police officer in Independence, Ohio, before Cleveland hired him. They didn't even know who they were hiring. Well, the officer, uh, Timothy Lohman by name, had been fired by Independence Police Department because he was reckless and careless on the police pistol range. And the deputy chief wrote him a letter and said, you're just too big a liability. You really can't be a police officer. Yet he finds a job in a much bigger police department a few miles away. And since he left Cleveland, he's also been hired yet by another police department. So I maintain that we got to certify departments and license every officer and yank those licenses if the officers can't or won't play by the rules. I think that's a resounding yes to that idea. What would be your advice to a new police officer today in 2020? A young one. My advice would be you have entered a vocation, an occupation. You've entered a line of work that is intrinsically noble and honorable. Honor that job. Honor the people you have been hired to protect and serve. Recognize that you will be provoked. Uh, recognize that you have the capacity to resist that provocation, to respond with psychological hardiness and emotional resilience. You have the capacity of a thinking, reasoning, feeling human being to bring aid and comfort and safety to your fellow citizens. Do not allow that badge on your chest to grow heavy. Do not allow yourself to become trigger happy. Control your emotions. Work on yourself. There's a body of knowledge that you need to acquire. There's a set of skills that you need to acquire. But there's also the person you are, the human being that you are. And the more resilient, the more hardy you are psychologically and emotionally, the more effective you will be at your job, the safer 
you will be at your job. You will be out there bringing order to chaotic situations and peace to violent situations if you're good at what you've hired on to do. So the challenge is get good and don't define good too narrowly. There are a lot of skills that people would say, well, those are the touchy-feely aspects of police work, to which I say nonsense. Those are not soft skills. In fact, their absence in society sort of speaks to how difficult they are to accomplish, to achieve. But if you're a brand new police officer, I would say hold on to your humanity and your sense of humor. Uh, You're going to need both. Good advice. So here's my last question. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? This is, in this moment, the first time I have been hopeful. I mean, I've always been hopeful. But if the real question is, what makes you believe it'll change? uh, The answer to that question is you and people like you and people who have taken to the streets in cities and towns across this country since Memorial Day. Up until Memorial Day, I would have said there will be modest, cosmetic, incremental improvements here and there to police departments here and there, but not enough to reform the institution. There simply is not enough political courage and individual courage to accomplish that. But since so many millions of my fellow Americans have taken to the streets, a huge percentage of them, white middle class, uh, protesting for the first time in their lives, and they may be in their 60s or 70s or their teens or 20s, I have now actual hope and a belief that we'll see a change in the institution. I don't think we go back to ground zero. I don't think the American people will allow that to happen. There will be plenty of resistance. There will be plenty of, um, uh, I just have to call them Trumpies. There will be plenty of QAnon forces out there arguing against and protesting against what I and so many others are advocating, and that is true police reform. But I honestly, for the first time, hope and believe it's going to happen. Well, I hope you're right. If not now, then when? You know, at this time when the world is upside down, I think we need to seize the opportunity. We do. We do. Thank you so much for being on Future Hindsight, and thank you for all the work that you do. Oh, thank you so much. Very much my pleasure. From the abundant anti-civilian police footage over the last seven months, I didn't expect an ex-police chief to welcome calls to defund and dismantle American law enforcement or to urge us to halt the war on drugs. Norm's book and our conversation gave me a richer perspective about how police culture is institutionalized and that reforming the police will have to be a long-term project that will require commitment and fortitude from all parties. If community policing succeeds, it will prioritize social justice and the well-being of our collective humanity, our safety, and our dignity.
As we've heard many times before on this podcast, the way we can reimagine public safety and achieve true reform is through collective action. Organize, mobilize, and educate. Next week, our guest is Bernard Harcourt. He's a contemporary critical theorist, advocate, law and political science professor at Columbia University and the author of The Counter-Revolution, How Our Government Went to War Against Its Own Citizens. Since 9-11, everything from the torture under the George Bush administration to the indefinite detention at Guantanamo, since then, throughout all of the administrations, to drone strikes uh, against innocent victims are extraordinary and exceptional and unheard of and intolerable. But the point I try to make in the book is that it's actually become the way that we govern and that it's not a state of exception but it's become a state of legality we started to govern ourselves in this way as a form of strategic what i call counterinsurgency governing we talk about legalizing brutality militarizing police and thinking about abolition democracy as a beginning point to help us find a way out. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for continuing to listen to Future Hindsight. Our executive producer is Mila Atmos. The audio producer is Peter Fedak. And our associate producers are Miriam Zumbul and Brooke Sayan. Be sure to listen to us on Apple Podcasts, futurehindsight.com, or wherever you enjoy podcasts every week. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.